You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. If we sail on Columbus, we shall fall off the edge of the world. Nonsense. The world is round. Captain! The edge of the world! Happiness is a cigar coordinate. The mild cigar from <laughs> Oh, God, man. is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, the mild cigar, mild cigar. Happiness is a podcast called Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese. Happiness is macaroni and cheese. With a very, very soupy sauce, a sousson sauce. Happiness is melty cheese, molten cheese, in the middle of a breakfast burrito. Happiness of vegetables that you do not need to peel. Happiness. No tan lines. Happiness is a phone that closes and can create a beautiful cheese toasty sandwich. Hello there everybody, my smoked little sausages on a stick. It's Chappie, your British butler, keep calm and cauliflower cheese, episode 224 today. And it's a Sunday sermon edition. You don't have to put your hands together. You don't have to uh, prostrate. Is that it? When you, like, bend over? Or is that when you have your... Checked by the doctor? Um, you, no, you have to be prostrate. That's when you're in a pew, isn't it? And you're... Praying to the Lord, Jesus Christ. I mean, is, is that what it is? Prostrate? It's being bent over, isn't it? We don't want to start Googling or looking at a Oxford English Dictionary at this early stage of the show. It's absolutely marvellous to be here. And uh, here, can you just hear that? That's my beard. It's getting a little bit itchy. And I do look like a uh, U-boat captain. 
said it doesn't grow in, but it also grows very... My, my hair is quite light, but my beard is very dark. It's very, very black. It's, it's, it's yeah. I don't know why that is. There's no grey in it, though. I mean, I probably, maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Now, I just want to, right at the top of the show, take my hat off. And I do sometimes wear a bowler, often a flat cap, not very often a top hat, although I feel that I should. Maybe I could pull a rabbit out of a hat or a hair out of my bottom. Who knows? But hats off to movers. I moved one of my uh, storage areas here at Chappie Towers. That musty smell of mouse pee was around. That wasn't the worst of it, though. We'll get to that in a little bit. And uh, I I feel like my arms are probably a couple of inches longer. Some say that may be a good thing. I think maybe I have shorter arms. I don't know. Or maybe my torso makes my arms look shorter. I mean, we, we discussed this before. But... It is the worst job in the world, moving, moving anything. But this was a couple of hours of solid labor, sweating like a pig. And uh, oh, there's nothing worse than the sweat going into the contact lens as well, is it? I, mean, I know these are first world problems and all. But uh, yeah, you don't be wearing glasses, but sweat dripping onto glasses, you have to keep polishing your glasses. And the worst thing ever is sweat Dripping onto the glasses, then dripping down the nose whilst carrying a hundred pound box. I mean, I don't know if it was necessarily a hundred pound box, but it was heavy. Oh, the old muscles are hurting, but they're never used, my dear boy. They're never used. That's why that's why they're hurting so much. They're never used. Not some cotton. So I, I did get rid of a lot of stuff last year. But I still feel like a terrible hoarder. I mean, there's items that probably should have been thrown away when the junk man came last year that are still there. But the worst thing possibly I've ever seen occurred where there's one last box of heavy books. Probably old copies of Wisdom, the Cricket Statistician's Bible. Uh biographies classic pieces of literature of course first editions my dear chap yes sadly not but I lifted the box up and there was a um, is it petrified or putrefied putrefied mouse with no head it was just the skin of the mouse and the tail and I'm thinking, if there's anything that's a harbinger of the end of the world, then that may be it. It was the most disgusting thing that I've ever seen. And I, I do not want to touch this rodent, or <laughs> the, the remnants of the rodent. <laughs> no, oh my gosh, I can't get it out of my head. I thought it would be in my, my dreams last night, but it was a whole different kettle of fish when it comes to the dream last night. Just uh, the, the weirdest dream I think I've ever had. I never, I never dream here at Chappie Towers, though. I don't know what it is. If I'm not at Chappie, Chappie Towers, if I'm with my darling, then I, I dream. But I don't dream here at Chappie Towers. I don't know why. Anyway, so this podcast is obviously dedicated memory of Her Majesty the Queen 
but I do feel a little bit sorry for this poor mouse as well. That maybe in its last moments had to look through the records of wisdom and understand why 1888 was such a hard year for Test Match Cricket and WG Grace's last Test Match. It was the last thing the mouse probably saw. And for that, my dear boy, or gal, I'm sorry. So coming up on the uh, podcast today, let's just give you a recap of what happened the other day uh, on the Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese episode 223, the other day was. Or was it 224? I've forgotten. I used, to, I used to keep a tally of gnomes, didn't I? And then it just got a little bit too much. And when you start hoarding gnomes, people start talking about you. Not a good thing. So what is sturdier, the cup sous le monde or avec la saucière? Is the cup better without the saucer or with the saucer? Obviously, infinitely better with the saucer, you would say. We talked about M&S doing away the saucer. How I became Steptoe and Son, I was trash surfing, and then my trousers fell down. We had a potato crop update. We may have more potato crop updates through the course of this show. I think it's important to understand the state of our King Edwards. Um, Also, the other day, we did delve a little bit into uh, more corgi news. The Queen's Corgis. It was a biteometer little session there. Today, though, we do have some Rate My Plate. I mean, I think in times of mourning, we should look at happy things. Laughter, the laughing policeman. Laughter for our movies, our classic British movies. But also, um, we need a little bit of the English breakfast on Rate My Plate. That Nothing makes me happier than the uh, English breakfast, I would say. Oh, well, I forgot to talk about the foot wrapped in tinfoil, how it gets rid of gout. We talked about that the other day as well on the uh, podcast. But I dreamt that I was lost. I dreamt I'd, I'd lost my luggage and then I got lost. So it was a double whammy of uh, lost. Almost like being on a desert island like that old show, wasn't it? It was like a, uh, a sequel to Lord of the Flies, it, it seemed like to me. But yeah, it was... And I was very... I sort of chastised myself that I didn't have any of those air tags. Those Apple air tags that you put in your case and then you can track them. Now, I want to maybe a human embedded air tag. We'll be talking about that a little bit later as well. We never discussed the black sock over the podium. Not the black sock. The black bag. The great British black bag over the podium. Um, we never hazarded a guess at my favorite new item on the new iPhone where you can make a toasted cheese sandwich. Uh, also, the interactive audio island Pleasure Dome. Um, we, uh, we need to get around to Naz, the vaping Lexus driver, the Uber driver, Tales from the old Uber driver. And then it's real housewives of California people called California ladies that have moved to Colorado um, in the old Uber driver. I had that very, very cheerful lady this morning, but probably the most Californian lady you'd ever happen to meet. We've never dipped our toe this year anyway in pumpkin spice. <gasps> Oh, Fortuna. Pumpkin spice, yes. And queuing. We have to cover queuing today, don't we? Before the queue disappears. 
the Great British Queue. The British are good at all this ceremony, but we're even better at queuing. At these moments, it is traditional to observe how good we are at pageantry, but it is also an excuse to display another national strength. At Windsor Castle last Sunday, they continued to come in their thousands. Some were old, some were young, some brought children, some were all in black, others in full Union Jack regalia. Some sounded like they might have been related to the royals, others sounded Australian. You suspect the late queen would have approved of the number who brought dogs. Whoever they were, they queued. They queued on the approach roads and roundabouts on the way to town. They queued for one of Windsor's dozen or so parking spaces. They queued for mugs of tea. On the approach to the castle, they were directed by a battalion of volunteer stewards in regal purple, vests to walk around the corner and back up the long walk to the gates of the castle. If you are coming to lay flowers, we are operating a one-way system, came the cry over the general respectful hubbub. A one-way system, a queue in other words. Slowly they shuffled up to lay flowers and they queued to see the flowers that they placed earlier. Afterwards they queued for pints. We've mostly been queuing, says Sarah Anion. Just beyond the gates, allowing herself a smile at the thought, Shona Potter, Peter Chapman, has driven three and a half hours from Lincolnshire for the privilege. But we don't mind queuing. It's a typical British thing to do, isn't it? Everybody seems quite calm about it. At these moments, it's traditional to observe that the Brits are very good at pageantry. The bugles sound, the flags come out, and the royal machinery, an intricate and honed as a Swiss watch, is suddenly visible but is also an excuse to display another national strength, our talent for queuing. From Balmoral to Buckingham Palace, the past few days have seen tens of thousands of visitors doing it in an atmosphere of remarkable good humour. You feel part of the queue, says Eleanor Long, holding up a bouquet of white roses and making steady progress up the long walk with their children, Oliver and Abigail. It's gathering without organisation, but people have all linked minds and decided to do the same thing. You have to do it in an orderly and, dare I say, respectful way. I think at times like this, we come together. There's a lot of sadness, but the Queen was a jolly person. I don't think she would want us to be too sad. The perceived British love of cues is sometimes used as a criticism. For go-getting Americans, which think nothing of cutting in line, the British reverence for cues betrays our stuffy lack of dynamism. And though you could draw a direct casual relationship between a well-ordered post office and our lack of decent technology companies, in other countries a queue is an evidence of weakness, as well as hopeless faith that some unseen authority will punish miscreants and reward the obedient. Yet the evidence of the past few days have shown the good qualities of a queue. A queue is enforced by convention. To join a queue is to demonstrate that you do not think that you would do any special treatment. There is an essential fairness to the queue, which rations its prizes on a first-come, first-served spirit. You do not buy or barge or moan your way to the front. It may be an illusion, but we're better at queuing than anybody else. The science of the subject is limited. Either way, it's a potent for the national myth which speaks to our other qualities on which we pride ourselves. We associate queues with hardship or hope, waiting to get off the beaches of Dunkirk or for tickets to Wimbledon. The Queen's death is a little or both, not wholly sombre, nor yet a celebration. A queue brings order to the disordered situation. 
Over the coming weeks, there'll be more cues to sign condolence books or get a glimpse of the funeral procession. Even if you don't get close to any events, you can be confident of doing some queuing. The royals, defined by precedence and succession, understand queues better than most families. There is a way of doing things. Whether you like it or not, it's not irrelevant. The queue is a philosophy that matters is not your place in line, but how you conduct yourself while you're there or whilst you're there. Life is a queue after all, and all of us will have our turn soon enough. It's important now that we have an update on the uh, potato situation, the growing season, the harvesting of potatoes. Uh, my parents now have about 10 bags, a uh, little bit sore at the back of the legs, a lot of squatting and bending to pick up the King Edwards. Uh, but uh, yeah, let, let's now uh, have a, uh, let's go straight live to the whole potato situation. Uh, we, 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 we love potatoes on Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese. And we need right now a potato, a potato update. As you can see, look at them lovely potatoes. What, what potatoes are these, Dad? Bars? Yeah, we've got some bars, I think. And we've got some other potatoes in. Bloody bars. <laughs> look at that brilliant. That's how lovely that does. Straight as an arrow he is, gonna be as straight as an arrow, look at that. Perfect, look at that, you can't beat that, can you? That's it father, put the power down boy. Put the power down, look at that. Bloody lovely that is, bloody marvellous. Bloody marvellous. Your dad's making some holes, so... You want to do that? What I'm doing? What put some more holes in? Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Put some more holes, and then we put potatoes in them holes, and put some fertilizer, and then cover them back up again. They'll be ready for August. Is it August? September. September. Sorry. Just set our first row of taties. A couple of rows of taties. Lovely jubbly. Dad just checking out now, making sure everything's so. And that's a good jet job done, you know. Good day's work. Another dream session here on the podcast. As I said, I never dream at uh, Chappie Towers. I don't know why I never dream at Chappie Towers. Maybe my sleep isn't deep enough. But last night, I had an absolute abomination of a dream. I dreamt, first of all, that I'd lost my luggage. Yeah, I lost my luggage. and, And then, not only couldn't I find back my way back to my luggage... After finding out my luggage was lost, I couldn't find my back, uh, way back to the little place where I started. So it was like double trouble. It was double bubble, a double whammy. And, and, and I don't know. I, so I lost the luggage and then I got lost myself. And then I started chastising myself that I hadn't bought the Apple AirTags to put into the luggage and thinking that maybe I needed an Apple AirTag inserted into my neck, sort of AI style, minority report style. Uh, to track my way back because uh, my lack of sense of direction is abysmal and i seriously was like the whole it felt like the whole night wandering around aimlessly looking for my luggage and trying to get back from a to indeed b so after doing research and this show is very very well researched isn't it very very well researched um about getting lost luggage is one thing 
but getting lost. I think the dream was more about getting lost than lost luggage. So dreams about getting lost or being lost are not unusual. We probably had a similar dream and wondered what it actually meant. Sometimes dream interpretation depends on the overall situation. So dreams about getting lost or being lost actually represents your current life situation. Perhaps you're feeling out of place at work or out of place in personal life. Something is missing and things are not the way you imagined they would be. Well, I'm moving again, so that could be the problem. You have lost your guidance in life and however it's hard is to go back on the right track again. Pressure and stress is making your life a misery. No, it's not. I'm pretty unstressed, you know. I'm very, very unstressed. Probably because of that, I suppose. Um, but dreaming about getting lost, well, I would think lost at school, getting lost in an unknown street. Okay, maybe it's that. If you had a dream about getting lost or being lost on an unknown street, uh, it was at the airport, I think. This dream means you will experience difficulties whilst communicating with others. I'm a top communicator, aren't I? You won't be able to make a connection with people who are potentially important for your job or business projects. Um... Getting lost in the snow. I've never dreamt about that before. Uh, being lost in the forest, lost and chased by somebody else, lost whilst driving. That's not going to be a problem. Um, dream about being lost inside a house. Well, that's probably close to it. If you had a dream about being lost inside somebody's house or inside your house, then this dream means you don't feel safe in reality. Perhaps you're a victim. A victim in your life or something. Sometimes our fears are irrational and we transfer them to our dreams. If your fears are irrational, then you should relax by taking a vacation of a few days. That sounds wondrous. To focus on things you like doing and forget about everything that's happened to you. Well, nothing's really happened to me. But I don't think I can find a dream specific enough that I chastise myself that I should have put air, uh, air tags into my luggage and then get an air tag inserted into my neck so I never get lost again. I couldn't actually find uh, dream analysis that specific. I don't think there's anything more British, as well as queuing, than the Commonwealth Garden British Black Bag, or Black Sack. So, when this trust became Prime Minister, uh, the day of, it was pouring of rain, and they went and put a huge black sack over the podium. Because my true belief is nothing in this world is ever completely waterproof. Nothing's waterproof. It really isn't. And the only thing that can make something waterproof is a black bag. Now, I've had black bags on my feet because no shoes are waterproof. Playing golf on Christmas Day. Uh, I've done that before. But there's nothing as handy. Everybody always has a black sack, a black bag. I had the situation yesterday when I was cleaning out Chappie Tower storage and all of a sudden there's a random black sack in there, a black bag. Everybody always has a spare black bag. So if ever you're in any trouble or strife, I mean, you could have the situation where if you get into a, like a whole deluge of rain, you can put a black bag, you know, and cover yourself and become completely waterproof. Everybody needs a spare one, and nothing's more British than having a spare black bag when you need it. So a few amazing things when it comes to royalty. If you think about the Queen Mother, the Queen Mother had met, I don't know if she met Queen Victoria, but uh, George V, Queen Mary, uh, Edward VIII, obviously, 
George VI, her husband, Queen Elizabeth, Margaret, Charles. But something even more remarkable, though, if you think of Queen Mary, the consort to George VI, George V, she knew seven British monarchs personally in her lifetime. Queen Victoria, her mother-in-law, Edward VII, or her great, well, I guess it's, would it be a great mother-in-law? I don't know. Edward VII, her father-in-law, George V, Edward VIII, George VI, Elizabeth II, and Charles III. So she knew generations going back well into the 1800s. Queen Victoria born in 1837, King Charles born in 1949. Victoria's funeral carriage gets its time to shine for the Queen after decades in careful storage being polished at least once a week, a 2.5 ton piece of royal history will play a crucial role as the monarch is laid to rest. For the past five years, Lieutenant, or Lieutenant, Commander Paul Barker has polished the state funeral gun carriage at least once a week. As its custodian, he has also moved its wheels by a quarter of a turn every seven days to stop gravity making them go egg-shaped. A 2.5-ton carriage with a 13-pound silver-barreled field gun came out of storage for the first time in decades last week as Operation London Bridge, the funeral plan for Queen Elizabeth, was put into motion. In a tradition dating to the funeral of Queen Victoria, the 123-year-old carriage will carry the Queen's coffin and be pulled by 98 Royal Navy sailors, rather than horses, from Westminster Hall to Westminster Abbey on Monday. She'll be carried inside by as many as eight pallbearers. Junior ratings marching at an exact speed of 75 paces a minute. The pace specifically reserved for funerals will then pull her on her final journey from Westminster Abbey up Constitution Hill, where her body will be transferred to a hearse and then on to Windsor Castle to her final resting place. In preparation for this event, we'll have increased polishing tenfold. If you look at the gun carriage, the barrel itself has been chromed. That's year... Years and years of polishing and lots and lots of elbow grease, Barker, who is now 60, suggested. I tend to get upset if I see a little new scratch, so I probably crawled over every single part of it over the past four or five years. Barker said at HMS Collingswood, Hampshire, where the rehearsals for the funeral are taking place. It was a great honour and privilege to be involved. Held at 24 hours readiness to move the last time the carriage was used to carry a coffin, was in 1979 at the funeral of Lord Mountbatten, the Queen's cousin who was killed by the IRA bomb. It carried the wartime Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill in 1965, the UK's most recent state funeral. Stephen Prince, the head of the Naval Historical Branch who met the Queen twice, said he's expected her funeral to be the biggest state funeral ever in terms of people attending. He said the carriage was given to the Navy by Edward VII and had been preserved it ever since. Built in 1899 for the standard light field gun of the army at the time, it was converted into a ceremonial gun carriage by fitting a catafalque, a raised platform with a horizontal roll for moving a coffin. On the day of Queen Victoria's funeral in 1901, a coffin was to be carried out on the gun carriage through the streets of Windsor, but in the bitter cold of February, the horses that were going to be pulled panicked and reared up, threatening to topple the coffin. Prince Louis of Battenberg, the first sea lord and Lord Mountbatten's father, suggested to the new monarch Edward VII that the Royal Navy intervene. The king agreed within five minutes the horses 
had been unharnessed and improvised ropes attached, allowing sailors to haul and ca- the carriage in the coffin. By the time the king's funeral, nine years later, the drill had been formalised and the honour of hauling the carriages remained with the Royal Navy ever since. It is now kept under environmentally controlled conditions of between 16 Celsius and 20 and a humidity of between 40 and 70 percent to prevent it becoming dry, brittle and to stop fungal growth. For Commander Steve Elliott, 49, who will be marching in the front of the gun carriage, it is his final duty in uniform. This will mark the end of a 32-year service in the Royal Navy for me. My last job in uniform is to convey Her Majesty from Westminster Abbey back to the outside of Buckingham Palace before onward to Windsor Castle, which is my last duty I could perform for my Queen and my country. It's a bit emotional and it's an amazing honour. The married father of two from Portsmouth met the Queen when he captained the Queen's Guard the first time in the Royal Navy and has taken on the duty in his 375 years. His predecessor in the Navy was Sir Walter Raleigh. He said that the junior sailors who had been drawn from across the Royal Navy had not practiced pulling or acting as the brakes in the carriage until the death of the Queen. Since then, the sailors have been working up to 12 hours a day to perfect the role. It's a zero-fail option. They're representing not only the Navy, they're representing the nation as the Queen makes her final journey. The thousand sailors, including 98 troops, will pull the carriage for approximately two miles, will be among more than 2,000 military personnel involved in the funeral procession. Forty sailors march behind the carriage to act as a break. Hundreds of Navy personnel will also be acting as stewards to help control the crowds which will be street-lined, made up of sailors as young as 17 who guard the coffin en route. Able seaman Murray Kerr, one of the street liners, said he only joined the Navy seven months ago and is part of the biggest ceremonial event in history. Now I've got this responsibility. I feel to give something back to the woman who gave her life to this country. His hardest task will remain still for four hours on the day of the funeral. Tales of the old Uber driver. So this was a couple of weeks ago. It didn't mention at the time. Uh, but I love I love the personalities and characters of the Uber drivers that I that I meet on occasions. Now this was an absolute uh, beauty the other day, um, <laughs> beauty of a situation. So getting picked up, um, I, I was champion two dinners uh, the other day. I was uh, I'd ordered a curry, my Sunday curry as I like it, and then I was summoned at last minute to go to dinner. So the curry was arriving. I left a Trader Joe's bag on the door and uh, asked, the, um, uh, asked the, the people dropping it off, the Uber Eats people, to just leave it in the bag. And I was going to dinner. And the, and the fear was, how long can a curry hang on a doorknob before it goes off? But that's not part of the story. The Uber driver picked me up. You know, As I was really flustering and blustering and anxious about uh, the... How, how well the, the curry will survive a few hours of hanging on a doorknob. And also somebody taking it, as I talked about else before. My old neighbours took my curry one day and I only only figured it out when I got on my hands on my haunches, hands and knees, and uh, smelt my way like a bloodhound to their door and I discovered they'd stolen my curry. Anyway, Naz, the Uber driver, when I got in, it wasn't the smell of bubblegum pop or uh, or cinnamon or you know apple apple spice or anything along those lines no pumpkin spice latte but i smelt the whiff of marijuana and i and i said can i open the window my dear 
And she said, yes, why? Well, I can smell you just being vaping. So this lady picked me up and she had been vaping marijuana before. And I thought maybe during she was going to pop out the vape and take a big old... But luckily she didn't. And I thought, well, if you like vaping this, uh, va- vaping the good stuff, vaping the Colorado weed whilst driving, I, I need to, I, you know, I need to take my blinkers off and to keep a close eye on what's going on here. <sighs> so you go from one one extreme to another, where lovely lady uh, this morning, the most Californian woman I was ever going to meet, pulled up in a Lexus, huge rock on her finger. And, uh, and, and and told me how that uh, the quality of people in Colorado have gone down since the uh, since people have been smoking marijuana here. And I told you, I mean, I, I often sit in my closet getting high from my neighbor's marijuana habit. I mean, that does seem to happen. Um, you know, I, I can I can I can sniff my uh, my uh, herringbone shirts and my uh, my pressed Oxfords. For uh, for marijuana, and it, I mean it's terrible. It's probably you know when I put a shirt on, it's probably going into my blood. I'm having marijuana in my blood, just from my closet. So Naz, the smoking the marijuana. We had the Real Housewives of of uh, Orange County, Uber driving here in Colorado, and uh, talking about how she felt that there shouldn't be marijuana in the state of Colorado. You had the Ying. And then, indeed, you have the Yang. Welcome back to Very British Problems Official. I think I'm going to have to get a Very British Problems Official calendar this year. I think I need it, definitely. So, miss them out, but some classic Very British Problems uh, over the last week or so. A solid, reliable 13 degrees Celsius, cold, mild, dependable, prime light weather jacket. The perfect temperature. It's definitely got a little bit chillier, though. One day, people will visit Britain just to see the giant queue, and they'll have to queue to see it. Being unable to ask a stranger a question without first saying, Excuse me, uh, hi, sorry. Only British person who will quietly join the back of a five-mile queue without even bothering to attempt to look how far ahead it stretches. Not even looking up from their phone, maybe a small bottle of water in one hand showing the rest of the world how queuing is done. Switching from the murderous road rage extreme gratitude the second your passenger says, I think he's letting you go. The absolute worst thing a British person can do to is assume that things are going well, as it's at this precise moment a large lump of excrement will hurl itself into the nearest fan. Upon nearby walking into a lamppost, the British person will start talking to themselves and may not stop for quite some time. Oops, sorry, ha, nearly. Well, why am I apologising? Stupid, I'll talk to myself now. Idiot going mad. I don't know. Dear me, right. Let's put the kettle on. Everybody knows my fondness for a kilt and a rather... uh, rather predominant sporran as well. A kilt maker expressed his extreme pride as he shared the story behind his most treasured creation, a kilt made from the bolt of fabric donated by King Charles. Graham Bone, probably an unfortunate thing to happen if you have a kilt on, was a steel worker but changed careers after becoming concerned for his health. Bone from Alconcleck in Ayrshire 
took part of the modern artisan program offered by the Prince's Foundation and found his calling in making traditional hand-sewn kilts. He credited the course with opening up a whole new world for me, saying it changed my life considerably. Speaking to reporters at the Foundation headquarters in Dumfries House near Kananak, he wore the kilt he made for himself donated from the fabric. He said the response to his first designs had been absolutely unbelievable, recalling an event in 2019 when he was still training. It was a massive press launch we had that morning, so there was press from all over the world, as far as Sydney, America, Canada, everywhere. While we were talking to the prince, obviously now the king, I jokingly said, I'll make you a kilt in this. Just a wee while later, I was told to take the first eight yards of the bolter fabric by the Royal Highness so I can make so I can make my kilt. So I have a unique one-of-a-kind kilt that will never be replicated. And the fabric's been given to me by the king. I don't even know where to express my gratitude. He looked back on the memory of the extreme pride that his meetings with the king been one of the most poignant personal changes for me. Bone's success in the fashion world led him to meeting the Queen of Malaysia who asked him what he wore under his kilt. The kilt was made from donated fabric from pride and joy and he will one day frame it. Well, wonder what's under the kilt. Is it the crown jewels or the king's jewels? Who knows? Whoops the daisies, you're going to have to forgive me because um, I, I've got a six-minute egg or a couple of six-minute eggs, some nice buttered soldiers. Such a rush day, lots of chairs to do. So uh, as I uh, conclude the podcast today, you may hear the bell alarm go or the whistling for a six-minute egg. And then that moment, I'm going to have to dip into its yolky goodness. <gasps> oh, okay. Anyway, so let's have an American's view of the queue. I mean, there's so many queue stories today. There's a queue of queue stories today here on the podcast. While it fits with a national stereotype, the orderly 30-hour, five-mile long queue for the lying in state of Queen Elizabeth is more than just about lining up. This is an American's view. In his essay on the British people, George Orwell remarked that any foreign observer would be struck by their orderly behaviour and in particular the willingness to form queues. It's one of those British stereotypes that's come to mind in recent days as the mother of all queues lengthens and snakes along the south banks of the Thames River. As many as 750,000 people, nearly a million now actually, were expected to travel to London ahead of the state funeral for the late Queen Elizabeth II on Monday. Queues began forming days earlier on the opposite side of the Thames from the historic Westminster Hall where her coffin lays elevated in a catafalque. We all know this because there's an official live queue tracker which reports the length of the average time to the destination at a speed of roughly 0.5 miles an hour. Those standing in line receive wristbands to mark their place with extra welfare facilities, toilets and uh, guardrobes and uh, water fountains to relieve the discomforts of slowly shuffling along through the day and night. There's also detailed guidance on what to bring, food, water, on what not to bring, flasks, camping equipment, large bags, well, maybe a black sack, and how to behave. There's plenty of security, uh, not that it seems necessary so far, while archival footage of the Queen is shown up on the large screen. Volunteer faith leaders are on hand to help mourners process their experience. And not even Disneyland, with celebrated key management strategies, can match this. That so many have come from so far to wait so long for a brief look at the late monarch's coffin will strike many around the world as curious and excessive. 
People took days off work and pulled school children out of school. They are not waiting for the latest iPhone for the chance to pay their respect to somebody most of them have never met. Most Americans tend to disdain long lines. It was incredible, texted a friend as she returned home from a trip to London amid the travel chaos this summer. It took me hours to get her into Heathrow and people were just tolerant and dutiful. It would never happen in the US. Americans would be irate. There would be chaos. For the rugged individualist, queues generally feel like a poor use of time, suggest bad organisation and seem testament to in a herd mindset. They can be uncomfortable if you're waiting with the wrong shoes or don't have a bathroom access. In the early 90s, lost all feeling my toes standing in line in minus 20 degrees Celsius to buy a few essentials in Moscow. And yet we queue as an un- unavoidable means to an end, to get through airport security or to ski lift or a museum exhibition. Happily waited in long one line February to purchase a spectacular hot chocolate at a stand in Paris, but I've never seen anything like hundreds of thousands of Britons and visitors are doing right now. It takes a certain stoicism, humility, determination to drop everything and be part of it. It's the never-ending debate of whether there's such a thing as society. Here's hefty evidence of it. Orwell wasn't wrong. There's something to the British reputation of Q-tolerant which dates back to the Industrial Revolution and others in wartime rationing. Proper queuing is so synonymous with common decency that when the UK first set up its citizenship in test in 2010, how to form a queue was on it. When former British Prime Minister wanted to defend his policies, sending refugees to Rwanda, he accused male refugees of paying smugglers to queue jump. But the reputation of a nation eager to stand in line, the Brit who joins the back of the queue before asking what it's for, is mostly overblown. Yet Brits wait in line overnight for Wimbledon tickets. I've done it twice. But Americans camp out for tickets to Duke University basketball games. Brits were furious about the travel chaos as everybody, as they made clear on social media. Even reports that Tesco shoppers preferred to queue than to use the self-checkout turned to be over, overblown. Those queuing to see the Queen describe many motors as a unique moment in the long life of Britain to express gratitude and pay their respects. The deaths of other historical figures have drawn large-scale public gatherings in the past, but nothing quite like this. By all accounts, the vibe of those waiting to pay respect is solemn, neighbourly, expectant, joyful, sorry, and above all, determined. Many have made new friends, stood in silence or chatted. Nobody seemed in any doubt what the wait was worth it. Those emerging from the historic hall described the experience as visceral. Fear of missing out aside, how eager would you be to join a queue stretching some five miles and lasting up to 30 hours? There's the six-minute egg. If you asked me a few weeks ago, the answer would have been swift. Now I'm not sure, but I'm glad there's so many people who don't hesitate. Thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. It's been smashing having you here. Smashing having you here. If you like the podcast, you can like and subscribe on all the platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, also Slacker Breaker. You can listen on Audible, you can listen on Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, almost everywhere. Almost everywhere. To be honest, if you have your foot wrapped in that uh, gout-laden aluminium foil... As you scratch along and meander along, sometimes as the scratchy aluminium foil goes across the hard floor, you can hear keep calm and cauliflower cheese emanating from that scratchy old foil. Coming up next, though, we have a poem in memory 
and respect of Her Majesty the Queen. The quiet heart may beat no more, but her legacy lives on in we who adore. For the strength of courage, for the view of clarity, for the calm of confidence, for the humble humility, for the ups and downs on life's rocky road, she championed the chariot for friend and foe. As we mourn her passing and give thanks for her service, we can choose her greatest lessons and keep carrying her chalice. I will be back again next weekend for two more Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheeses. But have a lovely week. Cheerio. Happiness is a cigar. Bloody beautiful. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.